every silver chair record has been a little bit different from than what we've done in the past, and and it's almost like it's almost like people expect it now. They don't expect us to do what we've done previously. Try something completely different, I guess, and just get out of your out of your space, out of your personal space. I was really trying to write tracks that were complex and really simple this time. A lot of the stuff on Diorama was kind of complex and complexer. I guess you could almost look at it as a, a whole new beginning again, uh, which is kind of exciting, but a bit nerve-wracking at the same time. Hello and welcome to Too Much of Not Enough, a Silverchair podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Hedger, and in this episode, I'll be talking about Silverchair's fifth and final album, Young Modern. It's a new year. Welcome to 2021, the year where I finally get to the end of Sewerchair's officially released studio albums. That doesn't mean I'm going anywhere, necessarily, but it does represent an ending of sorts. And yes, just like the Diorama episode, you probably have noticed that this is going to be another two-parter. Young Modern is also too big to fit into just one episode. In this first episode, we'll talk about the background and recording of Young Modern before delving into the first five tracks. We'll pick up next time with the final six tracks and the reception to Young Modern. So before we get started on the episode proper, I did just want to once again say thank you to all of you out there for all the support you've given me over the course of this show. I only started this podcast back in May of 2020, which I know was a million years ago, but the response has been really amazing. But if you are still enjoying the show, please tell anyone you think might be interested in listening. Uh, That usually means Silverchair fans, but I'd also like to think that includes music fans in general, 90s rock fans, and music history fans as well. And yes, I am still asking you to rank the show five stars and give it a little review in Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast app you use, because it really does help getting the show in front of people. If you're feeling really generous, you can always support the show directly at the PayPal link in the episode description. I've actually had a few of those over the holidays, and I do really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much to those people. I don't know how to message back through the PayPal app, or if you even can, but just know that it means a lot to me. I don't make any money from this podcast, and those little donations help at a very basic level to keep the show hosted. As for social media, I am obviously on Instagram, at Silverchair Podcast, and Facebook at facebook.com slash Podcast. Or you can email me at silverchairpodcast at gmail.com. 
And just another reminder that if you are thinking about becoming a podcaster yourself, I highly recommend Buzzsprout, which is my podcast host. It's a super easy platform to use. They take the hassle out of managing a podcast. So if you do happen to be looking for one, I highly recommend Buzzsprout as a podcast host. If you go to the affiliate link in the episode description and sign up using my code, you get a free $20 Amazon gift card. Okay, and with all that out of the way, let's talk Young Modern. On January 29, 2005, Silverchair played the Wave Aid benefit concert at the Sydney Cricket Ground, a charity gig to benefit the victims of the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami. The show was swiftly organised by Silverchair's manager John Watson and John Butler's manager Phil Stevens, who got promoters Michael Chugg, Joe Segredo and Mark Pope on board, eventually raising almost $2.5 million for the cause. Silverchair weren't the headliners at this gig, Powderfinger and a reformed Midnight Oil came on afterwards, but they might have been the most anticipated. Remember, this was almost three years after Diorama, and not even the band were sure if there was a future. Their short set was full of old classics. Israel's Son, Emotion Sickness, Without You, The Greatest View, Anna's Song, The Door, and The Lever. There were no new songs, and no particularly challenging ones for the band. There was a reason for that. Wave Aid was put together very quickly, in just over a month, and Silverchair weren't a going concern at the time. They apparently had only been able to rehearse one week out from the show. They in fact hadn't done a full gig since June 2003 on the Diorama Tour, but the band believed that the cause was so important they couldn't be precious about it. This was Silverchair as raw as we'd ever seen them, and it wasn't their strongest showing, performance-wise, but it did make some important people realise how special Silverchair were. Those people being Ben Gillies, Chris Joannou, and Daniel Johns. Thank you all very much. You've been the greatest audience, and we'll never forget you. When their set was over and Midnight Oil took the stage, Daniel watched the pub rock masters from the side of the stage. As they churned through classics such as Power and the Passion, Beds Are Burning, and Forgotten Years, Daniel had something of an epiphany, or so the story goes. Seeing that Midnight Oil was such a good live band inspired Daniel to want to write an album that would play well live. Seeing how great a live band could be made Daniel want to be a great live band. Here's John Watson talking about that. Um, it was fantastic for the younger artists to see Midnight Oil when they had never seen them. You know, I watched Midnight Oil perform that night with Daniel Johns and he was just gobsmacked. And I remember him saying, I want that. How do you get that? I remember saying, well, the first thing you don't do is break up your band. Uh, <laughs> but um, he, he was uh, moved, like profoundly moved by it. I know a lot of other people were too. In a way, Midnight Oil inspired the whole Young Modern project. 
It was about not just songs that would play well live, but the sound of those songs as well. More than any other Silverchair album, Young Modern harkens back to an earlier era of Australian rock, pub rock, which Midnight Oil typified. And it didn't hurt that Silverchair were already close with one of Midnight Oil's more famous producers, Nick Launay. But that would have to wait. Despite Daniel's decision to revive Silverchair and push ahead with a new album, Silverchair once again had to be put on hold because of the Dissociative's brief European tour in 2005. But luckily for us, he did come back. In fact, or maybe in legend, Daniel had started writing new songs in the UK, where he was still living at least part-time, co-writing with Julian Hamilton of The Presets and his Dissociative's bandmate, as well as Luke Steele of The Sleepy Jackson, who he would go on to make the Dreams album with many years later. Jeff Apter quotes Daniel as saying, As usual, I got about eight songs in and started missing Chris and Ben. And so, in December 2005, Sewerchair rented two houses in the Hunter Valley on the New South Wales Central Coast to rehearse and get their groove back. They apparently rehearsed and demoed up 11 new songs. With no major label support anymore, Atlantic in the US had dropped them after Diorama, and Eleven was still a very small label, the band decided to self-finance the new album, and thus started booking gigs in the early part of 2006 to support the recording. These gigs included the Rocket Festival in WA, the Adelaide Clipsal 500, which is a car race, not necessarily something you'd think Silverchair would do necessarily, and Sydney's Great Escape Festival. Some of these gigs gave punters a taste of the material the band had been working on, including Waiting All Day, Mind Reader, and Straight Lines. The strategy paid off, raising the necessary funds, and recording for the fifth Silverchair album started in April 2006. Silverchair went back to the one and only Nick Launay to produce the album. Nick had recently produced Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds' 2004 album Abattoir Blues, The Liar of Orpheus. Apparently, Daniel loved this album, and so when he checked the liner notes to see who had produced it, was pleasantly surprised to see his old mate Nick Lornay's name. The fact that Nick had previously produced some of Midnight Oil's classic albums probably wouldn't have hurt either. By the by, the Midnight Oil connection continued during the recording as well, with the 2006 ARIA Awards occurring while the band were making Young Modern. Silverchair performed at the ceremony, covering Midnight Oil's I Don't Want to Be the One, to induct Midnight Oil into the ARIA Hall of Fame. This was the performance where Daniel spray-painted PG for PM, Peter Garrett for Prime Minister, on the ARIA set. And incidentally, that song became a staple of their live sets after that. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know, when we played it at the ARIAs, I just really liked it. And I remember playing it and just really wishing that I wrote it. I wish so badly that I wrote that song. So I was like, well, we've learned it now. Let's just put it in our set and pretend we wrote it for just one more night. Despite the Australiana of it all, the bulk of the Young Modern album was recorded at CD Underbelly Studios in Los Angeles, though I have read that Daniel wanted to record the songs in every place they'd been written, which included Laurel Canyon, the UK, and Prague. I'm not sure how much was actually recorded outside LA, but I believe at least some of it was done in Canada. And of course, they recorded with the City of Prague Philharmonic Orchestra in Prague, Czech Republic, conducted by Van Dyke Parks. Oh yes, Van Dyke Parks was back to orchestrate three songs on the new album. He even came up with the album's title. Young Modern was Van Dyke's nickname for Daniel. I always wanted to call this record Young Modern right from when I started writing it because that's what Van Dyke Parks used to call me whenever I'd meet up. Go, hello, Young Modern. And it makes something, it's like a 
Lennon record or something where it's, there's artistic integrity to it, but it's also completely um, palatable. We obviously can't pinpoint when all the songs for Young Modern were written, but we do at least know that the Dissociatives were performing an early version of If You Keep Losing Sleep back in 2004-05, which is a song that obviously ended up as a Silverchair song. That might be instructional for working out how Daniel approached the rest of the album. As I mentioned in the Dissociatives episode, the songs on that album were all now written in standard guitar tuning and played on Daniel's Fender Telecasters. All those conditions carried over to Young Modern. The simple chord voicings, the capo playing, the increased falsetto singing, the clever chord changes within simple structures to make parts seem bigger than they are, all of this came to Young Modern. We do know that at least some of these songs were written on tour with the Dissociatives, since Julian Hamilton of the presets and the live keyboard player for the Dissociatives has a co-writing credit on four of the 11 songs on Young Modern. Yeah, my whole kind of guitar playing style changed around, probably around the end of Diorama, but um, it was it was actually really good. I had two years where I wasn't not allowed to play an instrument or anything, and I couldn't walk, so I was just kind of stuck in bed and in hospital and in wheelchairs and stuff. So I didn't I actually didn't I wasn't allowed to play guitar and I couldn't move my hands. So. How hard was that for you? Oh, I hated it. Yeah, well, <laughs> it was really horrible. But um, the funny thing was that when it, when I started getting better, yeah, and I, and I started playing again. I had this whole new way of playing guitar, which I actually enjoyed more. It's a lot more, um, what do you call it, the span of my hand wasn't as wide anymore because everything was stuck together. <laughs> but mm-hmm. then, I've, I mean, over time, now I can play can play everything again, but there was a while there when, when I was just starting to get better that I, I couldn't really play things as well as I, as well as I should have. Daniel has said that developing reactive arthritis after Diorama changed how he actually played guitar which maybe explains his choice to use the Telecaster more, first for the Dissociatives album, and then for Young Modern. Exclusively, in fact. Then again, maybe he just wanted to try something new. And of course, since he was using the Telecaster with the Dissociatives, and many of the songs were written during that time period, it stands to reason that he was just reaching for the instrument he had with him on tour, the Tally. For the non-guitarists, Daniel changing to a Telecaster is a fairly significant change because the Telecaster is famous for having a really bright cutting sound, which is why it's a favourite in country music, for example. You can really get it to twang. The treble sound of a telly is one of its characteristics, rather than the heavy low end of something like a Gibson Les Paul, which Daniel had previously used on songs like Emotion Sickness and Without You. So to me, the Telecaster makes this album sound different at a bass level to Silverchair's previous albums. In interviews at the time, Daniel talked about wanting to write simpler songs, comparing it to Diorama that was, quote, complex and complexer. He never wants to repeat himself after all, and he definitely didn't want to make Diorama 2, which he also said in interviews. It's, like I said before, I think it's the most cohesive record that we've come up with. I think the, the, the vision's quite clear for it, and I know exactly what I want it to be. Um, it's a bit less... That's a lot less orchestrated than, than Diorama. Um, and it... Do you mean, as in orchestrated, do you mean with strings and things? Or? Yeah, just just in terms... I've really... I tried to simplify the songs as well. just tried to make it more... Just more like using people like Lennon and people that really communicated to everyone no matter how far-reaching their artistic vision was. I really want to make a record this time that is not just for the people that love music. Yeah. I want to make a record that 
you know, sing to people that don't want to be sung to. <laughs> Daniel also talked about wanting to bring the audience with him and maybe entice a new audience that might not have been into Silverchair before. It's hard to read exactly what he meant by this. I don't think he meant that he wanted more commercial success. I don't believe that was ever his intention. He had seen as much fame as he could handle, thank you very much. But I think the positive response to the dissociatives, especially at home, gave him the confidence to write when he was feeling happy, and people would accept it. As he said at the time, he was glad people didn't need him to be slitting his wrists to enjoy his music. I also don't think he was having a go at the current existing Silverchair fanbase either, though it is possible he associated them with the hard and darker periods of his life, and much like he didn't like playing certain older songs live anymore, might have felt that he'd outgrown not only those old songs, but some of those old fans as well. After all, they were the ones harassing him, asking him when he was going to go back to Frog Stomp, as if that was even possible. A guy came up to me in Hyde Park in Sydney before we left for here. He walks up to me and I was sitting in the, I was running lyrics in the park and he goes, Daniel, man! I'm like, yeah? And he's like, Frog Stomp! What happened? I was like, oh fuck, this ruined my day. Heaps, heaps happened. The other thing that definitely inspired him during this phase was, as mentioned, seeing Midnight Oil perform at the Wave Aid Benefit and seeing not just a great live Australian rock band play, but also seeing how the audience reacted to them, how a wide ranging audience could make people move. I think it was this that Daniel craved from his own gigs. And maybe he looked at the current sewer chair set list and thought, bloody hell, we could do with a few more up numbers. Thus, we have songs like Mind Reader, which seems almost designed to be a live barnstormer. It's no wonder that all three of the band members loved playing the songs from Young Modern Live. It's their most live-sounding album in a decade. However, if there are criticisms of Young Modern, and there are, in fact, more than I had remembered from some of the old guard of fans, it is the first Silverchair album in a while that is, I think, at least a little indebted to direct influences. Talking about the album, the band did reference a lot of 60s and 70s acts, T-Rex, Fleetwood Mac, Roy Orbison, but at least to my ears, Young Modern overall doesn't sound like a nostalgia piece, though some songs are being self-consciously retro in a way that I don't think was their best move, but I'll get to that later. It's hard to get your head into the landscape of 2007, but mainstream rock was still very much a genre, and this album seems to really point the way forward for where rock might have gone, in a sense. It was drawing on the past, but not necessarily trying to repeat it, at least on the songs that really work on Young Modern. I wanted it to sound like the White Album or something, where it's like completely broad in terms of what what the genres are covered and what's being explored. You know, there's stuff like Mind Reader that just sounds like the Rolling Stones meets Captain Beefheart, and there's <laughs> stuff like... Yeah, Thieving Birds and Strange Behaviour, which almost has like a... Mother Nature's Son, kind of. Yeah, it has like a big kind of psychedelic quality to it and, you know, things like Straight Lines, which is like a lot more modern and a lot of synthesizers and things like that. So, I don't know, I think it was just about exploring different genres and, and yeah, trying to have fun with music. It's interesting to hear Daniel say in that clip that he wanted Young Modern to be like the White Album, where every song is different and has a broad palette. Because, and I do like this album, don't get me wrong, I feel like this album is actually the flattest, though not the blandest, sounding album. There is a stretch of songs in the back half of the album, Low, Insomnia, Waiting All Day, that sound like they could have been B-sides to me. And I sometimes get them confused in my head because they seem interchangeable. 
It could also be that those songs have quite bland titles and the lyrics don't have as much personality as what Daniel had previously done. Daniel has said that he wrote the lyrics to Young Modern while suffering from insomnia. Jeff Apter quotes Daniel as saying, It was a real across-the-night experience. I didn't realize what I was writing until I'd finished. Some of the lyrics are deliberately vague, whereas some are the most direct I've ever written. I'm really getting into the idea of trying to communicate to people who don't want to hear Silverchair as opposed to the music fans. End quote. That's also something that will come up again. This time around, Daniel was referencing albums like The Talking Heads Remain in Light and Brian Eno's Here Come the Warm Jets. Off-kilter pop for sure, but pop music all the same. I read, read in Rolling Stone that there's a, there's a link between the first six songs, a thread running through them. Yeah, I think um, there's kind of a lyrical link to all the record, but the first six songs what's, kind of What's special about the first six? Um, well, to tell you the truth, I wrote kind of the first six, so they, so they joined up lyrically, and then after six, I went, oh, fuck it. <laughs> so that's, that's what happened. The first yeah. six join up lyrically, and the rest are kind of like, I don't know, they're like interpretations of, of similar subjects, but it's, um, it's really only the first six or seven. Join up, I think. Like, yeah, and then a bit more freedom after And that the too. rest is just like, okay, let's just play the blues. Yeah. <laughs> Daniel mentions in that clip that the first six songs on Young Modern are all meant to link up lyrically. So that's from Young Modern Station to The Man That Knew Too Much. Although the past few Silverchair records did have the feeling that they were conceptual in some way, this is the only time to my knowledge that Daniel specifically wanted songs to lyrically relate to each other. The main lyrical theme on Young Modern is actually that of sleep and insomnia, most obviously in the song Insomnia, and that theme appears throughout the whole album, not just in the first six songs. We'll see how successful those thematic elements are as we get into the songs. So let's get into the songs. With Diorama, I wanted Diorama to be an album that people couldn't dance to and they had to listen. I really wanted to demand the listener's attention. I was with Young Modern... (coughs) I think the the listener's attention is optional and it's actually pretty much every song has a has a feel that you can yeah it's just funkier it's more you can dance to this record I don't think Silverchair's ever had a record that you could dance to As an introduction to the album and to this new incarnation of the band, you couldn't do better than Young Modern Station, the de facto title track and opener to the album. It has the new wave rock elements that feature prominently throughout the album. It has those prominent 80s keyboard sounds, which for the record I think really work, especially on this song. It also prominently features Daniel's slightly dirty Fender Telecaster. Young Modern is the album where, although Daniel's songwriting had changed direction, It's actually the sound of the band as a unit that stands out. This is Silverchair's Power Trio album, and it fit with these new songs that Daniel was writing with more of a new wave 80s type vibe, or at least a 70s rock and roll band vibe. The way Ben and Chris were playing on these songs was like The Police, or even something post-punk like The Jam, and that is typified by the song Young Modern Station. The track actually starts with a wall of feedback and what I believe is Daniel speaking through his guitar pickups, which he does again later in the song. 
I don't think it's ever been clarified what he's saying there. And when they played this song live, they didn't do that part. So it's a bit of a mystery. It could, of course, just be a noise or a scream. It is a jolt to start the album, though. And older fans will remember that that was the sound that started the chair page website when this album first came out. The standout performer on this opening track is Ben. His hi-hat work in the verses is impeccable. And the little rhythmic things he adds during the stuck to the goal to rescue parts in the chorus are incredibly fun and smart. He's matching the rhythm of the guitar, but what a choice to match it. He is what is making the song feel so propulsive. I also love how by matching the guitar's rhythm there, when Ben does go to that crash cymbal, it has the effect of making it sound like the song is dissolving into the synth keyboard wobble that comes up underneath. And what's notable as well is that Ben is standing out not by being the hard rock John Bonham skin basher that he had been on the albums up to Neon Ballroom, he's standing out by playing a tasteful and intricate part that really serves the song, bringing everything he's learnt to date together. I think we touched on this in my interview with Ben, but he doesn't get the credit that he probably deserves for his creative input into Silverchair. He was one of the songwriters in the early days, after all. On our past records, we've done gone for real, like John Bonham, roomy, kind of really big drum sounds. This time we've kind of we've kind of gone the other way, and we're trying to go for more of a T-Rex, Beatles, Fleetwood Mac, um, you know, really kind of dry and fat. I also love the guitar part in this song. It's built on frenetic staccato downstroking of suspended and minor chords, which often land back on an E minor at the end of phrases, which is a trick that Daniel had done in Black Tangled Heart as well as in My Favorite Thing from Diorama. And needless to say, all the songs in Young Modern are written in standard tuning, like those two songs I just mentioned. The guitar part alternates between those downstroked straight chords and that verse riff, which has a nice, again, propulsion to it. They really nailed the train-moving theme of this song. At the time, there was a genre of indie rock that called this kind of riff an angular riff. Think Block Party or Interpol. I don't think this song overall particularly sounds like those bands, but the riff isn't dissimilar. This is, after all, the album where Daniel said he tried to listen to as much music as possible, rather than, like on the previous albums, where he was deliberately limiting the scope of music he was listening to, lest people think he was ripping someone off. On the contrary, this is the album where Daniel was voracious and listened to as much as he could. There's so many different influences on this record, which I think has worked to my advantage. I never used to listen to music when I was writing because I was scared of ripping people off. And um, this this record, I've just been listening to everything. And just, I I think someone from REM said once that um, you either have to be influenced by everything or nothing, and that that really. That really affected me when I, I don't know who said it, but whoever said it, it really struck a chord with me. So I really have been listening to everything from, you know, Charles Mingus to uh, Kylie Minogue. (laughs) (laughs) Side note, being accused of ripping someone off was a valid concern back in those days for Daniel. Every so often, I do still stumble across some people online who love pointing out that some of Daniel's riffs might sound like some other bands 
We talked about the slave riff in my FAQ episode, and I saw someone the other day pointing out that the main riff in Suicidal Dream sounds like Bleed the Freak by Alice in Chains. The thing that people don't understand, though, is that just because one riff might sound like another riff doesn't mean that those songs overall sound the same. Daniel's songwriting wasn't actually all that riff-based, especially as he progressed, in the same way that some of those other bands were riff-based. So Bleed the Freak and Suicidal Dream both have an arpeggiated riff based around a B power chord with an alternating minus six F-sharp thing in the bass, although the Alice in Chains song is tuned down half a step, I believe. So they might have had similar sounding riffs, but overall those songs don't sound the same. Songs are made up of more than just a riff. And people act like it's a gotcha, like, ha, you ripped that off. Your work is totally invalidated. And that's just a really sad way to look at music. Anyway, back to Young Modern Station. Melodically, Young Modern Station is relatively simple, at least compared to some of the later songs on the album. However, it does have a few tricks up its sleeve. For one, there are accidental notes all over the place, particularly in the verses. The underlying verse guitar riff is a nice approximation of a harmony as well, meaning that that angular guitar sound is happening in the melody. Notice how the guitar riff and the melody sort of catch each other rhythmically. In addition, the allergic and in the news part is sort of a modulation within the verse, meaning it's sort of changing keys. It's not entirely clear to me how this song actually melodically works, but it does. The chart I have says that the song is in B major, but there are so many accidental notes, it's really just a case of how you want to write it down. I've spoken before about how rock music is a little key agnostic, and if it sounds right, it is right. Does it make you cry? I love the little keyboard echoes in the chorus on the offbeat at Fire Away. Bop, 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 bop. They always remind me of like a water drop effect. There are superb little changes in every part of the song, and this time using a different sonic palette than Silverchair had ever used before. At the bridge, we have Daniel singing through his pickups, or at least that's how he did it live, and the sound on the record approximates that. before launching into a loose interpretation of a guitar solo. It's dirty and, dare I say it, a little Kurt Cobain-esque, that guitar solo. Just like the Sonics of Young Modern Station introduced this new version of Silverchair to the world, lyrically this song can also be read as a new statement of purpose. Stalled at Young Modern Station, We know that Daniel is young modern, so maybe he feels like he's a train that hasn't left the station because of arthritic conversation. Life has a deadline lately, allergic and in the news. I don't think you need to be too much of a detective to work out those lines probably directly refer to him and his life over the past few years. And it includes one of Daniel's patented puns, life has a deadline. In addition, the song references a train station, and the song itself sounds propulsive, like a train. The clocks are ticking timeless, dead Dali days behind us. 
I saw this interpretation on Genius.com and I like it. That dead Dali days behind us refers to their old, more imaginative work. I buy that partly because the very next line is the band is back together. By the way, I can't be the only one whose heart swelled the first time I heard that line. Lines like that and I'm moving back to the country give me a real boys are back in town vibe. Daniel had literally moved back to Australia. I should also mention that Daniel, especially for Diorama, would actually write songs while looking at pieces of artwork. One song, I think it was After All These Years, he wrote while staring at a print of Salvador Dali's The Phantom Cart. So is this line promising that he won't do any weird stuff like that on this album? Perhaps, but as we'll see, there's plenty of weird stuff to come on Young Modern. The ending of the song fades out with that synth sound that gradually goes up in pitch and leads directly into the pulse at the start of the next song, Straight Lines. How does it actually feel after, after that long being back together in Silverchair and about to force it upon the, uh, the universe at large? How does it feel for you, Chris? It's kind of a little nervous. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of excitement, nervousness and all those things all rolled up into one. And, um, you know, we've been working on this one for a while now and um, we're really looking forward to it. Well, I am. I'm looking forward to it. Cool. I'm looking forward to it, Chris. But before we do move on, It is heartbreaking to think about how much this album and this song in particular made people go, shit, yes, Silverchair are back. And to watch all the press they did at the time, talking about how invigorating it was, only to then a few years later get the indefinite hiatus press release and basically nobody talks about what happened. We can't even get a straight answer about who's in charge of the Silverchair name. Like everyone knows how the Beatles broke up, how Pink Floyd broke up, and those former members have talked about it. It's in the past, it can't hurt anyone anymore, but with Silverchair, it's kind of a mind-your-own-business thing. Which I understand, but it's quite disheartening. The interview's over. Is Straight Lines the most controversial song in the Silverchair canon? Maybe for some older fans. I think now it's largely considered just part of the Silverchair story, but it's definitely the song perceived as the most poppy of their career, though it does have electric guitars in it. As a power ballad and the first single released from Young Modern, I'm sure it was something of a shock for some people. But I think that's by design. What better way to introduce yourself to an audience who might not have listened to Silverchair before? Daniel, by his own admission, wanted to appeal to a new audience, to sing to those who didn't want to be sung to. What better way than to release as your first single a song that is so poppy, and poppy in a modern sense, as anything they'd ever done? And besides, how could you deny the public a hook as great as Straight Lines? Straight Lines starts with a keyboard pulse carried over from the ending of the previous song, Young Modern Station. Then we hear the chord progression enter with arpeggios, one per bar. Four bars in, and we hear Daniel's voice enter with a melody largely based around one note, the third of the A-flat major chord that the song keeps returning to. 
The sheet music I have for this song has it written in A flat major, but the song really functions in B flat minor. The verse melody, the chorus melody, and the bridge melody for that matter, in straight lines are all amazing. It's an example of really good, clever, classic songwriting. The chorus even resolves to the root note as the root chord comes in. In fact, the verse and the chorus are both built around that A-flat major chord. It's so simple, but so great. For a song so clearly poppy, it is interesting to note how often Daniel is just sitting on the one note for a while, both in the verse and the chorus. This is only hit home by that again propulsive keyboard pulse on the beat, which often matches what Daniel is singing. Bum, 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 bum. Which all just adds to how contemporary it sounds by comparison to a lot of the other poppy songs on this album, which are more retro in their leanings. We often think of pop music as having big leaps in melody, but that's not necessarily the case. In fact, contemporary pop music, then and especially now, often just sits on that same note or only uses a few notes in their melodies. In fact, YouTuber Andrew Huang actually has a great video on how common sitting on the supertonic, the second note in the scale, is in current pop music. In straight lines, Daniel's verse melody in particular sits on the third of the scale rather than the second, but it's the same idea. Daniel wrote Straight Lines with keyboardist Julian Hamilton of The Presets and the Dissociative Live Band, and you have to imagine that, of all the songs Daniel co-wrote with him on this album, Julian's hand is felt the most with Straight Lines. All the way to the mix of the final track, you hear that electronic pulse of the keyboard more prominently than even Ben's drums a lot of the time, which is comparatively low in the mix. As for Chris's bass, it is there, but almost only by implication, especially in the early parts of the song. Musically, it was about making something that had a certain propulsion to it, like a travelling song and a song that felt positive, something that made you feel uplifted when you heard it, you know, like in the spirit of Midnight Oil, celebrational. I think I was just going for that, and it's the first time I've ever tried to write something like that, that had that feel. That's definitely one of the more sentimental songs on the record, but... There's also this, there's a sense of escapism that I really like about it, like an inherent feeling that everything's going to be alright, it's, you know, that real 60s Motown, make you feel good kind of song. Let's talk about that hook. The hook is pretty much Daniel John's high B flat that he constantly hits in this song. (laughs) 
The first time we hear it, it's in falsetto. In fact, not only is it in falsetto, Daniel makes a vocal choice that I've never really understood because he actually hits the note a little flatly. The first time we hear the rendition of the chorus, Wake Me Up, Lower the Fever, Fever is sung under the note. It might be that he's choosing to slide down from the note straight away and we don't even register what's happened, but there's no reason for this. We know he can hit that note cleanly. It obviously didn't hurt them. It's tied for first place alongside Tomorrow as the biggest hit of their career, in Australia anyway. But it's odd that he didn't just re-record that part and get the note cleanly. So I do think it's probably a deliberate choice. If you think back to what he said about the ending of Tuna in the Brine, where he layered up his vocals with that beehive sound, where he deliberately wavers off the notes, creating a really eerie effect, this might be something along those lines. Now, in that first Wake Me Up, Lower the Fever part, there's a lower vocal harmony on it, which just accentuates that the top line is sliding down from the note. It's a ballsy move for the first iteration of your chorus's hook. By the way, I love the synth sound that pitches up again with its pulses at this part too. It goes from the low A-flat pulse up to a D-flat. Going back a step, not only does the chorus enter in quite a subtle way for a pop hit, it happens more than a minute into the song, which is pretty far in. I don't know if many artists that weren't Silverchair could have held an audience's attention for that long without getting to the full voiced chorus. It's not until a minute 30 into the song that we get Daniel's full belted waking up strong in the morning, which after a while of his falsetto is actually a big relief and a powerful change in the song, even though the melody is exactly the same to what we've already heard. Then the guitars kick in. Not as prominent as you might think, but they are there. These lovely Telecaster chords. And then we're off to the second verse. By the way, you might notice that Ben and Chris aren't really in the song until then. Ben's work in particular in this song is subtle, but really effective. Ben's kick drum starts up on the fours at the first Wake Me Up Low with a Fever. Just another pulse to create a sense of building. Then in the second verse, he's doing a lot more with the toms, but only using the cymbals for emphasis, not doing a regular rock beat at all. And then by the second chorus, the full band is there. Ben really emphasizing it by that big hit on the four coming into that second chorus. Bang, wake me up. Again, he and Chris really serve the song. It's actually really effective how Straight Lines takes its time to get places. It's admirable, really. Ballsy. Another ballsy thing is making the main hook of your chorus in your first single for a new album a really high note to sing. Because you know as a performer that you're going to be playing that song live a lot. And that melody is really hard to sing, especially if you're not getting enough rest 
as a touring band often doesn't, or if you're a smoker. That choice did come back to haunt Daniel, but more on that later. When we get to the instrumental section after the bridge, when things really should be kicking off musically, the main thing you're actually hearing is the keyboard pulse again, rather than the drums, guitar, and bass. Or maybe that's just what stands out at first. Considering this was a radio hit, what stands out now is that there's a rock band at all. You don't hear that much on the radio anymore. Speaking of the bridge, listen out for the strings or what sounds like strings in there, and also that very George Harrison-y lick that comes in before it goes back to those chorus chords. There's a lot of layers in this song that I hadn't even noticed before. And I think when they did play this song live, the song really did come alive naturally. And you can hear that at its base, it is a power ballad that does use a three-piece band to drive it, despite all the keyboards. Tell people about Straight Lines. It was written, I was just trying to write something that felt, that had the same feeling as when you listen to the Ronettes or something from the 60s. Like It's not it's not a Motown song by any means, but that was definitely influenced by that, by that feeling of, you know, listening to Marvin Gaye or Otis Redding or something. I wanted to make something that felt really, really positive and, and felt epic and... I knew it was going to be the first single, so lyrically I wanted it to, to feel like there'd been a, a, transi- a, a transition and, and to feel like I've ended in a place that was different to, to any of the other Silverchair records. Lyrically, Straight Lines is not really a straightforward song, but one that Daniel has called a positive song. The lyrics are broadly positive, while still being very vague, as Daniel's lyrics usually are. No matter what you think of Daniel as a lyricist, the lyrics in Straight Lines have evocative imagery. A good luck academy, sickened socket, breathing from a hole in my lung, I'm a sex change and a damsel with no heroin, which is a bizarre line that uses a slightly outdated phrase, and then also a reference to a line in emotion sickness, addict with no heroin, heroin with an E in both cases, but the straight lines version, of course, removes the pun. I think the key lyric is in the bridge. There's no changing yesterday if we keep talking and I keep walking in straight lines. Reading into this lyric, he might be talking about moving on and not looking back, never looking back his whole career. And the idea of talking in straight lines might refer to talking at cross-purposes, where two people aren't communicating properly because neither understands where the other is coming from. If this interpretation is correct, the evidence is right here that we won't ever see a Silverchair reunion. With this idea in mind, the rest of the song's lyrics broadly fall into place. Moving on from the past, eyes facing forward and not looking back, walking in a straight line. And that's a broad, positive thing that listeners can apply to their own situations. Drug abuse, bad relationships, whatever. 
But there is another version of this song in another universe where Daniel was a different kind of lyricist, where Straight Lines became even more of an iconic song than I think it currently is in the Australian consciousness. Even though, as I say, the song has a vaguely positive message and, you know, walking in a straight line is a nice idea, the meat on those bones is too odd, too indirect to fully resonate, I think. There's a lack of specificity for people to connect with. This goes back to what I said, I think, back in the Freak Show episode about how music critics are very attached to lyrics because it's something they can latch onto about a piece of music without talking about the music itself. I'd like to amend that statement to say that audiences also get attached to lyrics. And although all of Daniel's lyrics are personal to him, the layers of metaphors and weird turns of phrase, the things that make them so odd and interesting to someone like me, can actually be alienating for a lot of people, critics and audiences alike. On Young Modern in general, and Straight Lines in particular, it doesn't feel like he's letting us into his world or sharing a secret with us, as he was doing on Neon Ballroom. It sounds like he's entertaining us. I love the Young Modern album, but I doubt it's this album that got any teenagers through hard times like Neon Ballroom did. And that's not a criticism of this album necessarily, but it is a distinction. Remember that quote where Daniel said he was happy people liked the dissociatives because it meant he didn't have to be slitting his wrists to be successful. I think that mindset really came through on Young Modern. Not only did he not have to slit his wrists, he didn't have to share anything of himself that he didn't want to. Would you ever want to do that again? I know Frog Stomp recorded in, what, nine days, something like that? Would you ever want to do that again, just quick, three-piece rock? Uh, maybe, yeah. I never rule anything out, but at the moment I'm getting pretty obsessive-compulsive about recording, so that's, to me, that's the most enjoyable part of being in a band, so I try and prolong it. In the now-forgotten art of sequencing an album's tracks, it is something of a stroke of genius to follow the most poppy, radio-friendly song of your career with one of the weirdest gonzo pieces of experimental pop rock Australian radio had ever heard. And If You Keep Losing Sleep is certainly that. If You Keep Losing Sleep, as we know, was originally played live with the dissociatives, and in its silver chair version, you can still hear those origins. The song starts with a left-hand piano pounding out the 4-4 beat. Then a bell dings, and Ben's regimental drum rolls come in, before Daniel's guitar does a chicka-chicka over the pickups, and the bizarre kazoo-inspired vocalizations come in. And it doesn't get more normal after that. The verse melody is a weird, basically dissonant thing, using well-placed accidental notes, notes not in key, to great effect. The verse melody is, like straight lines, based around mostly a single note, though this time used to a different effect. This time it's the sixth of the scale. In fact, the melody almost goes completely chromatic at the over other lovers part, so not really in any key. It's not actually chromatic, so it's probably going into a diminished or harmonic minor mode for that one bar, but it's so strange sounding. I love it. 
Listen out for how the piano and guitar have this offbeat rhythm against the vocals in the verses. I think what's actually happening is one hand of the piano is keeping that 4-4 pulse and then the other hand is matching the guitar's rhythm on the offbeats to what Daniel is singing, which is often matching those piano crotchets. It's very tricky, but it gives the song more of that off-kilter feel. Really effective. I also love the little caps at the end of the verse phrases, where it goes from that main vamp, a B dominant 7 flat 5 chord, out to this F sharp minor D progression, and then there's a little keyboard lick that is very dissociative to me, reminding me of the B movie aesthetic of horror with eyeballs. This is also where we get our first proper introduction to Van Dyke Parks' contributions to the album. And that horror with eyeballs part I was just talking about gets a big makeover with lush strings the next time we hear it. We end this first verse section by landing on a big E major chord. And Daniel's voice becomes super layered, in a bubble again. This brings in a halftime section. We go to a key change and a tempo change, slowing down with the halftime feel. The time signature itself doesn't actually change. It's still in 4-4, but the song is definitely changing gears in a massive way. Almost like this was a different song that got connected to an earlier one which I'm not knocking, there are some famous examples of that working. Happiness is a Warm Gun by The Beatles, and Paranoid Android by Radiohead among them. In fact, it's this song that sounds the most like two different songs put together than Those Thieving Birds' Strange Behaviour, which was written, actually, as one song, and then retrospectively labelled that way to justify the length. The melody in this middle section as well is a lot more stable, another contrast to the frenetic first part of the song. It's in this halftime section that Van Dyke's strings really open up and do a Wizard of Oz-like arrangement. I have to say though, compared to the ways Van Dyke Park's sections worked on Diorama, on this song at least, his work seems less essential, less integral to the song. Like it was... Not an afterthought exactly, but an embellishment rather than something drawn out of the music that was inherently there. There is a very short clip in the Young Modern Making Of documentary that came with early editions of the album, where Van Dyke is saying, what do you want me to add to it? And I kind of think he was talking about this song. The song works perfectly well with or without him. It's nice to have his parts in there, but yeah, it's not essential. This middle section also does have a more sparse sound with super layered vocals. The sheet music actually has the vocal harmonies written in, and there are four part harmonies. So Daniel is essentially creating chords out of his voice in this part. For example, the dry up the mud over me. me. 
as I mentioned, these layered harmonies are actually first brought in at the end of the last section, creating a continuity from one part of the song to the next. When I think about these harmonies, and this whole song really, I remember what Nick Launay said in my chat with him about how Daniel can hear all these different parts in his head that's too much for regular people who aren't musical geniuses to hear. I imagine there was tension between Nick and Daniel on a song like this. After the dreamy part of this song is done, we get to the bonkers shot the model part, which is as crazy a vocal performance as Daniel ever did. note that it's basically the same chord progression under this part, it's just Daniel's melody and vocal approach that changes. This is another example of Daniel making the same chord progression sound different by changing the vocal melody or performance on top of it. I mentioned that he does the same thing in Tuna in the Brine on the Diorama episode. Of course, the arrangement has also changed, which says something about the quality of players, how well Paul Mack, for example, was meshing with Chris and Ben as a unit. Have I mentioned Paul Mack yet? Paul Mac plays on many tracks on Young Modern, making him almost the de facto fourth member of the band. But I would hasten to remind any supposed fans who somehow think that anything they don't like about Silverchair is Paul's fault, check the liner notes and see how many writing credits Paul has on this album. None. Let's talk about the vocal performance in this middle section. On Young Modern, Daniel was bringing his ranty, experimental, live way of singing, as in the way he sang live, to an album for the very first time, with admittedly some mixed results. But what it does do is make him sound immediate and compelling. He sells whatever lyric he's singing, which is no mean feat considering some of the lyrics. Who knows what shot the model flaking temporary skin you're no burden means, but the way he sings it, jarring as it might be, you bloody believe him. And of course, those weird parts of his performance are juxtaposed with the beautiful, harmonized, dreamy parts where he sings softly and sweetly. It's almost surprising and not a little disappointing that after this middle section, we just get a repeat of that first section all over again, rather than shifting gears another time and taking the song in a completely new direction. We're not in Dioramaville anymore. On Young Modern, we're sticking to reasonably normal song structures, even on the weird songs. I think if I have a criticism of this song, that would be the main one. I love it, but I think it loses a bit of steam once we get past that middle section because we just go back to the start and it doesn't build to a climax like we know Daniel's great songs often do. Maybe that's a bit harsh. In fact, we actually get a reversal of the first half of the song the next time we hear it, going back to the refrain first, the if you keep losing sleep part, and then backwards again into the intro with the kazoo vocals. Van Dyke gets to do some beautiful work with the orchestra in this ending section as well. Just listen to those strings. He gets some brief but effective counter melodies happening in there too. So I like that the song has that symmetry in a way, 
But I do think there's maybe something lost in the simplicity of that structure. Maybe I just prefer my weird Daniel John songs to be structurally weird as well. But still, it's a great song. Also, I should note that if you have heard one of the demo versions of this song, you'll probably notice that it's slightly more abstract or even weirder. For example, in this ending section, the kazoo ah ah part is done at the same time as the main refrain. The demo version also returns to the dreamy section of the song for the outro, rather than the more definitive ending we get in the final version. Lyrically, If You Keep Losing Sleep falls into the category of, like I mentioned on the Dissociatives episode, words Daniel has chosen that he likes the sound of, rather than their actual meaning or implication. Can we read into them a whole bunch? Sure, why not? Since this song was written in the Dissociatives period, it might well have been written in Windsor, where Daniel was living with his then-wife Natalie Imbruglia. The title, If You Keep Losing Sleep, refers to insomnia. Daniel has again said that many of the songs on this album were written while he was going through an insomniac period. This is the first song that directly references that. We also have If You Keep Counting Sheep, a common method of trying to fall asleep, which, as someone who has suffered from insomnia in the past, has never worked for me. The irony of insomnia is that you're trying so hard to get to sleep, and trying so many different methods to get to sleep, and none of them work. But the phrasing is, if you keep losing sleep. So is this song written from the perspective of someone being affected by someone else's insomnia, maybe a partner, or maybe just the healthy version of the narrator himself? It could be, after all, a conversation between two sides of the same person. This would track with the two sides of the song, slow and fast, dreamy and awake, staccato and legato. Is the middle section the dream, and the verse parts on either side when the narrator is awake and anxious? But of course, no matter what the song's about, I'm glad we still have some of these great evocative lines. As you'd expect, If You Keep Losing Sleep has some great bonkers imagery. A tombstone in the mud, playing Twister in a bubble again. If you're up chimney sweep under rubble covers. It's just brilliant. Now, I could try and dissect each line, but going with the dream logic of the song, I don't think the lines are meant to literally make any sense. Like much of Daniel's writing, it defies interpretation, because sometimes the words just function syntactically rather than semantically. That is, they sound like real sentences, but the content itself is impossible to explain. It reminds me of, in fact, how the famous linguist Noam Chomsky invented the sentence, colorless green ideas sleep furiously to illustrate how language can be grammatically correct but semantically nonsensical. And isn't it great that Chomsky's nonsense sentence also references sleep? I wonder if Daniel was aware of this. Of a sound. I know it's been 
If Straight Lines was Silverchair's take on a contemporary modern pop song, Reflections of a Sound is Silverchair's take on a traditional pop song. This song is an example of what Daniel can do with just a guitar in standard tuning with the most basic key and time signature. Very basic chords in C major, 4-4 time, fantastic song. The song starts with the first couple of bars of the chorus, giving us just a hint of it before it's restated fully later, almost like across the night, but on a smaller scale. This is something that's almost a theatrical way of writing, starting with the refrain. I actually have heard this kind of thing called a pop overture, so that kind of tracks with my idea of it being a bit more theatrical. Actually, I tell a lie. The song actually starts with Daniel breathing in. In the sun. Something that you would usually cut out of a final mix. We also hear a programmed beat and some kind of electronic wail that crashes right into the first verse. It's very effective. I think I've mentioned before how sometimes Daniel writes a chord progression that seems like it is the exact perfect fit for the melody and you can't separate them. That's how I feel about the verses here. Every chord change has logic and impact, like the melody is on tracks moving up and down at the exact right times. And even though he's mainly using chord tones, that is the chords he's using contain the notes of the melody, nothing sounds redundant or misplaced. Of course, that's how all songs should sound, but in a song like Reflections of a Sound, despite how outwardly simple it is, or maybe because of how simple it is, it just reveals the genius of the songwriter. So, considering all that, it's bizarre to think that this song possibly started out as a kind of transitional track. There's a demo version floating around that includes a little verse that sounds like it's meant to connect to those thieving birds, with lyrics like, where songbirds are sending, where swan songs are ending, before going into the main reflections of a sound refrain that we know, but this time it's repeated over and over. So let's talk about that main refrain or chorus. We start the chorus, the main refrain, with a 1-4-5 progression. And since this is in the key of C major, that just means he's playing C, F, and G. One of, if not the most common chord progression in popular music. But of course, this is Daniel John, so he throws in a little curveball by going to the E and then the E minor at the when nobody is around part. So it's a 1 4 5 3 Minor three. This is actually something Daniel does quite a bit in this song. Little chord shifts from the major to the minor version. So in the verse at Won't Choke Forever, Like a Memory I Needed Never, we go from the F major to the F minor. This is similar to what he does elsewhere on the album with suspended and major chords next to each other, which we will go into later. It happens a lot. After the second chorus, we get this great little chromatic walk down from G, passing through F sharp and landing on F. 
that brings us into the bridge or pre-chorus section. And it too starts with a major to minor shift. At the I've been waiting for far too long part, it goes from F major to F minor. During this section, the song really shifts, introducing these stranger chords, an E minor 7th flat 5, and an E diminished 7th, and then a D minor 7th, very different kind of chords to what we've been hearing so far in the song. And it gives the song a different flavor in this section. This is my favorite part of the song. And then the way it brings you back into the chorus is brilliant. I think I got chills the first time I heard it. Ben does great work here as well, his little accents catching the one, two, three, four, five to get back into the chorus. Also, this is not really a big thing at all, but something that might be cool for people who haven't played in bands is see if you can count the beat from when Ben's drums come in and keep counting until the chorus comes back in. So keep counting even when the music drops out and it's just Daniel's voice. Go one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Well, it's actually more fun to count the eighth notes, which is what Ben's playing. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. That's called a vocal pickup, where the music drops out and Daniel has to stay in time, so everyone comes back in on the one count. It's not really all that notable in music, but it's just one of the small joys of music, at least to me. Anyway, the change from the bridge part back into the chorus is just another example of how great Daniel is at choosing just the right chord progression to get you to feel something, take you on a little journey for eight bars or so, and then land you back somewhere you know, but it's changed somehow. When they performed this middle section live, Daniel would actually do jazz hands, which gives me some indication that he knew the vibe this part was giving off. I think that's why I responded to it a lot. It's so theatrical. The middle eight, the I wait so long part, brings in more of these more complex chords, but by the time we get back to the chorus, we're back with those just clean, shimmery cowboy major chords. There's a great building effect with the keyboards ascending as Daniel sings, it's like a loop that lasts forever. It's a really great shift in the song, but it knows how to get back on track. So I do really love this song, as you can tell, but it is the first instance on this album and perhaps the first time since maybe Freak Show, but even then not really because Freak Show had little self-awareness around it, where Silverchair were consciously being retro in their sound rather than pushing forward. 
It's all in this new silver chair style, but you couldn't say you've never heard anything like it before in the same way you might say that about Across the Night, for example. I'll put a pin in that idea for later. Lyrically, Reflections of a Sound again has some references to insomnia, particularly You're Keeping Me Warm But It's a Lonely Setting Sun, which reads to me like he's saying, even the person in my bed can't save me from my lack of sleep, which happens at night, i.e. after the setting sun. I really like the idea of a lonely setting sun. It's a more straight poetic way of writing than we often get from Daniel. Of course, the you in your keeping me warm could also be him talking to the sun itself. The sun keeps me warm, but when you go away, it's lonely because I'm up all night by myself. In the second verse, we have the possible play on words come down from the waste of time, which could refer to an hourglass. Someone on Genius.com came up with the hourglass thing, which I don't mind, considering that the next line is feel so empty when I feel so fine, and an hourglass empties from one half of itself into the other. We also have two lines that are similar. I've been waiting for far too long in the pre-chorus, and then in the middle eight, I wait so long. So the idea of waiting must have some significance. I need time to cure my mind. It's like a loop that lasts forever. He's been waiting too long, but he needs that time. There's a tension of ideas there that I really like. Receiving Birds was completely based on the view at my house in Windsor in England. <laughs> oh, you have a place so, in England too? That's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, well, that's where my wife lives. So I was sitting out on the sitting out on the back terrace with a guitar, and that song was written completely just looking at the view and writing things down. And yeah, it was like I think it was snowing or something weird, and I just sat out with my guitar and some gloves. <laughs> <laughs> How did you mix that up then with Strange Behavior? Why did you decide to put the two together? Um, well, it's, it's actually written as one song. It's all it's all one song. It was only a last minute decision to split it up with some oh, okay. titles, but I was trying to keep the iPod generation appeased. <laughs> Those Thieving Birds slash Strange Behaviour, or to be 100% accurate, Those Thieving Birds Part 1 slash Strange Behaviour slash Those Thieving Birds Part 2 is the centrepiece of Young Modern and another masterpiece to rival Tuna in the Brine. And it's clearly set up to be compared to that song. It, like Tuna in the Brine, is in the middle of the album and it's the longest song. It's more than a minute longer than Tuna even. It's also the first time Silverchair had titled a song like this, essentially pointing out that it's two separate songs put together, which makes it not quite the same kind of beast as Tuna in the Brine, as that song has a flow and build that just works. By contrast, Those Thieving Birds slash Strange Behaviour has starts and stops, but that's all by design. And funnily enough, it wasn't actually written as two songs, despite that multi-part title. 
So it's not quite at the level of Tuna in the Brine for me, but it's bloody close. It's a subtle masterpiece as opposed to Tuna in the Brine's more bombastic masterpiece. The first part of the song is Those Thieving Birds, which starts out with an arpeggiated guitar figure that repeats throughout this whole section. These fragments of chords take advantage of open strings and small changes in finger position, and also Daniel plays this with a capo, which raises the relative pitch of the strings to wherever the capo is placed on the fretboard. Now, annoyingly, the sheet music I have for this whole album actually has almost all the chord voicings wrong. So, for example, it doesn't tell you that this song is played with a capo. It just tells you what the chord ends up being without the capo, which unnecessarily complicates things. Not sure why you wouldn't just write it out as capo 4, but I guess they're trying to make a quote-unquote multi-score, trying to cater to concert pitch instruments or whatever. Anyway, just so you know, when I'm talking about this song, I'll refer to everything as relative to the capo, not to the concert pitch. Forsaken and underwhelmed Those leaving So anyway, this opening part is tricky, but not as complicated as it might sound. The melody in this section is full of dotted crotchets, notes held for longer periods of time, as well as bigger interval leaps, so there are fewer notes and therefore fewer words. I wish I could say that the word bird is on the highest note in its phrase, which would be a nice little bit of text painting, but unfortunately it's not. But these long legato notes contrast with what comes later when we get to the strange behaviour section, which has more lyrics and thus more notes in its melody. Going with the bird theme in the lyrics, we actually have some approximations of birdsong in the music, such as when Van Dyke Parks brings in the woodwinds at this section. In fact, in the demo version, this birdsong effect is more pronounced, with maybe a more literal take on the idea. So we do have this musical part in the final version, but in the demo, it really sounds like birds. Also, speaking of the demo version, listen out for what sounds like a choir in the Those Thieving Birds sections, which is a nice touch that didn't get carried over for the final version. When we get to Strange Behaviour, it kicks off with a key change and a time signature change, from those thieving birds 6-8 time to Strange Behaviour's up-tempo 4-4. In fact, the song is so assured, it doesn't even really try to cover up that it's a straight change, like in some Silverchair songs. Ben hits the snare and brings in the new time signature straight away. This change is actually starker in the demo version because we don't have Van Dyke's string build up into that change. We just get that cutting guitar entering, which is a little jarring. Both the verse parts and the chorus parts of Strange Behaviour have the same chord progression. That is, the this is tearing me apart is the verse, and the if this streets air is the chorus. 
Here's a very rough illustration of what I'm talking about. I am singing part of it down the octave, though. I don't have Daniel Johns's range. If the streets air ain't up to par, I'll take my clothes, I'll take if this the strange behavior. Forever will not only liked, but loved as well. If this keeps tearing me apart, the walls come down, won't stop this empty feeling. For only a for everything apart from this. This is Daniel again making the same chord sound different depending on what he puts on top. Not only that, the chord progression at least starts out the same as in Reflections of a Sound. C, F, and G, and then a minor chord. That one, four, five, and then a minor three. It's just that in Reflections of a Sound, it goes one, four, five, major three, then the minor three. And in Strange Behavior, it goes one, four, five, and then the minor six. So Reflections of a Sound is... And then this time with a capo, the start of the strange behavior chord progression goes. But anyway, the thing about the verses and the choruses of strange behavior being the same is pretty wild, considering how different the verse parts of strange behavior sound compared to the chorus parts. I love how triumphant it gets in the if this street's air ain't up to par parts. You would never have guessed it. This song also again features Daniel's trick of going directly from the major chord to its minor. So here in the strange behavior section, we get the walls behind walls part on the F major and then the R's on the F minor. Strange Behavior is also where we really get to hear Van Dyke's orchestra stretch out for the first time. We heard it in If You Keep Losing Sleep as well, but this song is so much more focused and it allows Van Dyke's gorgeous arrangements to really shine. The orchestra even gets eight bars to themselves to show off a bit. As always, Van Dyke Parks is able to draw things out from Daniel's chord progressions and melodies that just fit perfectly, just as he did on Diorama such as Van Dyke's choice to mirror and play around with the guitar figure, which goes from a suspended to a major. Well, actually, it's going from an 11th chord to a major chord, so it's not technically suspended, but it has a similar effect. Listen. When we get to the middle section, the lonely in life part, I think we're technically back to those thieving birds again, because it changes key back to where the song started. However, interestingly, now it's using chords more in line with what we've been hearing in the strange behavior section. No more goodbyes, 
This middle section as well has this amazing shift that only goes for two bars before it goes back into the Those Thieving Birds refrain that we've heard before. The part I'm talking about is the change from I'll hold on to the jewellery and the next line like staple strapped clench fists and tongs. First of all, what a weird lyric just on the face of it, but the music takes on a weird tone, even though it's mostly using chords we've heard before in the song, except it introduces an E minor for the first time. And in the instrumentation, that part is played with what sounds like a honky-tonk piano. The melody lands on this natural D against a minor chord, and Van Dyke's orchestra swells to lead into the rest of the Those Thieving Birds section, but I feel like it's a mini magic trick in the middle of the song. I'm not quite sure how they pull it off. Once we're into Those Thieving Birds Part 2 proper, it's not exactly the same as it was in Part 1, and nor is it Part 1 played backwards structurally, like Daniel did in If You Keep Losing Sleep. It's using the same arpeggiated guitar figure again, but after the initial hang strung from an empty nest melody that we have heard before, Daniel goes into the bring love sing love part, a new addition to this Those Thieving Birds melody. This makes it feel like not only have we come full circle with the song, but there's something new. We've learnt something. So as I mentioned before, this is the second song on the album that has this kind of symmetrical structure. If You Keep Losing Sleep also has the mirrored structure. In this case, however, the dreamy section and the awake section are reversed. Those thieving birds starts and ends with the dream, and the awakening is in the middle. If you keep losing sleep, obviously starts with the awake, and the middle section is the dream. I know I slightly criticized that structure earlier, but like I said, I think it works here to a better effect. One last thing before I talk about the lyrics. This song doesn't seem to resolve musically. It ends on a minor chord, or at least the way it ends is ambiguous, with almost a fade-out effect. Like there's more to be said. Lyrically, this is another Daniel song that refers to animals, in the same vein as Tuna in the Brine or Horror with Eyeballs. We get a classic Daniel play on words as well, Empty Nest emptiness. The birds in that empty nest are swans, apparently inspired by swans near a lake in Windsor where Daniel wrote the lyrics. And I did look up whether swans actually have nests, and yes they do. Apparently they're quite big. I have heard that this song is about, as much as Daniel's lyrics are about any one thing, monogamy, since we hear that the birds in the song are swans, and swans are monogamous. This could well be the case. It does make me wonder what hang strung from an empty nest refers to. And for that matter, if the birds are thieving, what are they stealing? Material for their nests? A better life? A non-monogamous relationship? Through this lens, I'll hold on to the jewellery seems to refer to a wedding band. No more goodbyes, no more big lies, as long as you and I are together, works this way too. 
That sounds like it's about a relationship and being together, maybe forever. Look, this song sounds like it could very well be about marital woes. So that tracks for those thieving birds, but what about strange behavior? Hear me out here. Have you ever seen the David Lynch film Mulholland Drive? I'm not going to try and explain it, but there is this idea of two worlds and dreaming. Incidentally, Mulholland Drive similarly has a symmetrical structure like this song. With the idea that insomnia is at least a thread in this song, and the fact that the song is so clearly cleaved into two sections, I'll posit that those thieving birds could be about the idealism of being with one person forever, but that's a dream world. And then there's strange behavior, which is how the narrator is really feeling inside. Those two worlds jut up against each other and cause tension. This is tearing me apart. Forever will never be fine. I can't pass out this theory line by line. How could I with lines like God is in the kitchen faking baby dangers? But, you know, maybe. Whatever the case, those thieving birds' strange behavior is Silverchair's final masterpiece. And that's it for this first episode on Young Modern. In the next episode, we'll talk about the rest of the songs on Young Modern, the reception to it, and some other discussions about the album as a whole. As always, thank you for listening. I'll see you in two weeks. This podcast is written, produced, and performed by me, Daniel Hedger. All Silverchair music is now, as of February 2021, owned by Sony Music Entertainment, in Australia at least. The interview clips from this episode largely come from Triple J, in particular a couple of Robbie Buck interviews, as well as an interview with Matt Schichter. Some clips have been taken from the Making of Young Modern DVD featurette made by Hackett Films. I've also used audio from selected performances and interviews originally broadcast by Channel V. I believe I am using all of these resources, as well as all music, in compliance with copyright.com.au slash about copyright slash exceptions. <laughs>